The Athletic. Totally Football Show 2022. The one where the title race was done on the second day. What a way to go though. Chelsea and Liverpool's 2-2 leaves City dancing in the streets of Manchester. Elsewhere, there's a goal of the month competition crammed into the space of two days. Some never tedious bar chat. Lukaku's talking. Leeds winning the rain, man. And Everton, nil satis, nil optimism. This is the Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. Happy New Year to you, listener. And boy, that was quite the way to kick off 2022 in the Premier League. Here to talk it all through with me, Matt Davis-Adams, are fresh from keeping his eye on the weekend's action. He knows the score. It's Daniel Storey. Thank you very much, Matt. That sounded like a sort of boxing introduction. I liked it. <laughs> yeah, it was originally a bit longer, but it kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole and yeah, truncated. Uh, from The Athletic, often the Aston Villa bit thereof, Dan Bardell. Hi, Dan. Morning, you okay? I'm all good, thank you. And having made it from the shed to his spare room in less than 24 hours, the incomparable Sasha Gurionov. Morning, Matt. It's actually the kitchen. Okay, fair. Um, <laughs> Sasha, you've got a great video of that, that Mateo Kovacic goal from Sunday. Was that your favourite of the weekend? Uh, it's, it was an impossible goal. When the ball was dropping to Kovacic, I was thinking, well, his legs are surely going to buckle here. So for him to be able to go back, he, I think he had to jump in order not to injure himself. And then to get that on target, uh, no, I, th- I don't think anyone could believe it. I think Liverpool fans behind me, because uh, I was just in front of the shed, um, they were just like, there wasn't any annoyance or anything. It was just like, wow. And I think there was a sense when there was a review for a possible Rudiger offside, people were just laughing. It's like, how could you disallow that? <laughs> uh, Dan, what about you? Favourite goal of the weekend? I want to be a bit edgy and say no, but it, it has to be really, doesn't it? The unbelievable strike from Kovacic, although I will say I did enjoy Salah's goal as well. I think the levels he's playing at at the moment are just are just unbelievable. And I put a tweet out yesterday when he, when he scored just saying he might be approaching being the best player in the Premier League ever because in my opinion at the moment, that some of the football he's playing is just incredible. By the time Sunday's action had finished, Daniel, I felt a bit sorry for Manuel Lanzini because on Saturday night I was thinking, oh, that's the goal of the season and it wasn't even the goal of the weekend by the end of it. Yeah, and, and Alexis McAllister's goal for uh, his second goal and his first goal for Brighton. It was a... Yeah, I don't know if it's because defenders are a little bit tired, but it felt like a weekend where teams were able to put together these brilliant attacking moves and there didn't seem to be anything that opposition teams could do to stop it. Uh, it was also the last Premier League weekend before some players head off to AFCON. Uh, Daniel will be seeing a lot of them at the business end of the tournament, but not Emmanuel Dennis, who Watford have refused to release. A Nigerian Football Federation statement said Dennis had been excused because Watford were bearing fangs. Uh, Senegal also claiming Watford are blocking Ismail Assar from joining up with his national team. Uh, Watford say that he's not fit. They are sending Adam Messina, Imran Loza and William Troost Ekong. Uh, but the Dennis thing, Daniel, feels feels pretty unsatisfactory for, for all involved. Yeah, it does. It, it, we should say that, that Watford are, and Claudio Ranieri is saying that they've not really done anything wrong, that there's a kind of mutual understanding. But it's pretty clear that Nigeria don't really see it that way. Um, their manager has insinuated that Dennis told him that he wanted to go to the tournament and that Watford were, were kind of stopping that. And there's a kind of wider point here, I think, about how we treat AFCON in Europe, we see it as a as a fly in the ointment, not least because it is a mid-season tournament. Although we should say this one was was originally scheduled for the summer, but moved because of COVID. And yeah, it's just it's. I understand why Watford fans are, are kind of well. So what? We pay his wages. We want to keep him, but that isn't really the spirit of these things. Is there also a sense that maybe certain club owners with a certain networks are uh, that? someone like Nigeria would not like to mess with because I think like I get the impression that Potos have you know covered the world pretty well and I think that there are certain relationships that perhaps guys in Africa might want to maintain. That's fair but I guess Dan Watford need to maintain their relationship with Emmanuel Dennis because he might be the difference between them staying up and not this season and you can say well we need him for these few games but if he loses his motivation even you know just five ten percent then that might have a massive knock-on effect for the rest of the season, never mind the period of AFCON. Yeah, because his form has been really pivotal to what they've done so far this season. Didn't, they, didn't he come off at half-time 
at the, at the weekend. Did I say did I say that correctly? He came off at half time, so there is some. There's obviously some form of injury, or, or they've got a complaint of some injury somewhere because he did come off at half time. But it's never a good situation. And play, play, I presume players want to go because it's playing for their country at the, the highest level. You wouldn't see a player being held back from going to the Euros. And yes, I get the point that it, it's 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 mid season. Watford need him. They could do without losing him for a month. But you've got to go and let let the player play. It does leave a bit of a sour taste, and it'll be interesting to see what unfolds. Uh, the African Cup of Nations gets underway this Sunday. That's the 9th of January. Next today, we'll get into that rip-roaring Premier League weekend. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Rudiger forward. N'Golo Conte. Christian Pulisic here for Chelsea. It's 2-2. Chelsea versus Liverpool. The game neither could afford to lose and neither did, but Manchester City won. Uh, Daniel, Sasha and I were all on hand to witness this one live. Dan was presumably hosting a watch-along party on Zoom with Romelu Lukaku and Jurgen Klopp. Um, Liverpool continuing their exhilarating trips to London this season. Um, Daniel, it's it's kind of difficult to say without sounding incredibly trite, but it was one of those days that, that made you think, wow, we're lucky to be here and, and lucky to be part of a full stadium watching something as, as bonkers as this. Yeah, absolutely. Those first 20 minutes were were remarkable. I watched, watched the highlights again this morning and um, <laughs> the commentator said, Liverpool took the lead in the ninth minute. I thought, was it as early as the ninth minute? It felt like I'd watched 25 minutes of to and fro before that goal. It was a fantastic game. Ultimately, it proves why, why Liverpool won't win the league, I think, because whereas City are this kind of ultra-controlled unit... Liverpool are, are for better and worse the exact opposite at the moment. They they spark, they use those forwards to spark, they score goals, but they never seem as if they have full control of a game. And it makes it brilliant to watch if you're a non-Liverpool fan, but it must make you kind of kind of sigh, but also gasp if you're a Liverpool fan. Because I think about after the game, like, you could take any Liverpool match and you could be told that in the next 20 seconds, either they'll score or they'll concede. And you'd believe it. And you wouldn't quite be able to work out how that happened other than probably Mohamed Salah destroying another defender's reputation. And yeah, it was it was magnificent fair. I think, yeah, that this lack of control is actually getting pretty infuriating. There were stages, especially in the second half yesterday, where there were certain sort of passing sequences that Liverpool were trying to get through midfield or certain crossfield balls. Like, what, what are you doing? Um, and it's... Um, I think on the one hand, you could say, oh, midfielders, this is what Liverpool should have got more of them. On the other hand, you know, how many do you need? But I think um, if you look at yesterday's match, it felt like there was the two teams that had been trying to keep up Man City and the engines have finally blown out uh, because I certainly got the sense in the second half um, they were getting visibly, visibly tired. And I think this is the same thing um, when Liverpool played Spurs. Uh, that game was nuts for about 70 minutes. Then it became a more nuts, but as people's legs started coming off. Uh, whereas yesterday, I thought fatigue was visibly setting. And I think the first half was incredible because, I mean, I was virtually on the pitch. And I, there was a couple of interceptions. Van Dijk intercepted the mount ball. It took me about three seconds to understand what happened. And the, the, But the, the guys who were on, on, on the pitch, and I, th- I think this is why it's important to see these guys close up, the speed of decision-making is incredible. It's like the, these guys operate on a completely different level. So it was incredible to watch close up, but as the game, as the life ebbed away from it, I think in the second half, and as then you go to the final whistle, I don't think I witnessed before that 22 players stand on the pitch, a utterly naked and absolutely gutted. Like I was speaking to Pulisic after the game and he was lovely and he was very pleasant, but it was like, I, I, I struggle to remember a player so disappointed. He was, he was, and he. I mean, he was saying, like, you know, they were gutted because they didn't win the game rather than anything else. But you couldn't help but feel that everybody in the ground understood that the final whistle that this season is over. And also, there was a few Liverpool players coming to give the shirts to the fans, and that also felt like end of the season. So I think, yeah, the, 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 the title race is over. I mean, these guys obviously have to be careful that they stay in the top four, but I can't really see them fall out of it. But uh, yeah, it was weird that you know, the league's over again um, at the start of January. Sadio Mane looked like he had a plane to catch, Dan. Should he have been sent off after six seconds? I think he, he, he's he got away with it, basically, because of how, how early early it was that in the game that, that it happened. It's a it's a shocking challenge. It's had an impact on the game because he scored the first goal of, of a pulsating game, but he's very, very fortunate to get away with that, in my mind, Mane, because 
any other time. I think if it wasn't the first action of the game, I think he's in a, in a lot more trouble. I think I can't, I'm struggling to even describe it because it just seems so obvious that he should have been sent off. I'm trying to jazz it up, but I haven't got anything to say other than, yeah, I think he should have been sent off. <laughs> I, I tend to agree, like watching the replays. And also I have to say, um, you know, props to Aspilicueta because um, I think throughout that game, he showed a lot of his own experience. He obviously didn't lose his head, well, literally, and then, you know, metaphorically, in that he, um, I think he played, obviously, wing back, he played right back, but also um, there was a few moments in the second half where him and, you know, Mane were really going head to head at each other. And, you know, he outfoxed him. And I think Mane, so mentally, um, it wasn't that Mane was in Aspilicueta's pocket in the second half, but I think Aspilicueta was fairly comfortable there. Aspilicueta's defending was okay, Daniel, but I mean, for any classic game, you need some kind of defensive calamities and, I don't know, Trevor Chaloba and Ibrahima Kanate kind of at the centre of that. But but generally, as, as back lines, they weren't of the kind of quality that we're used to from these two teams. No, I mean, Chaloba had a... I actually thought he recovered really well because he had a nightmare start the match. He played that um, kind of inadvertent through ball uh, for Liverpool to start the game after about two or three minutes. And then he has that kind of defender's weird uh, kind of corridor of uncertainty where he's not sure whether to clear the ball with his foot, which I think he probably should have done, or or try a diving header and ended up sort of almost doing neither and just sort of necked the ball into the ground for, for Mane. It's a fascinating game because afterwards I looked at the, the expected goals and they were basically exactly even. I think it's like 1.68 versus 1.66. But on the pattern of play it felt like Chelsea had the better chances. And yet they scored a, a highly improbable goal from Mateo Kovacic and kind of scored another goal almost in like the, the, the after wave or the, the, the kind of aftermath of that of that first goal just because their tails were up. But Pulisic should have scored early on. Um, so, yeah, it's a, a really strange game. I didn't really feel like Liverpool had anything other than the two chances they scored. And having scored those two chances, I assume they'd they'd see out the game and didn't. So kind of one of those games where everything, every time you had an expectation of what was going to come next, it, it was completely blown away. But it was a bit weird because, I mean, my impression, um, and especially as you can't really see properly down the far, the far end of the second half, was that Chelsea were just about to get in. So Matt, obviously you had the tactical view from the top, but it felt like they were really making the pitch really wide. Pulisic kept on Kevin, lots of space on the right. And it's as if, you know, the goal was about to come. But I think there was only the one Pulisic chance that was, that was really clear. Whereas Liverpool a couple of times really got, a, you know, broke away. There was also a time that Mane got in Salah's way, um, after which Salah looked like he's... Like, I followed Salah for a couple of minutes after that, and he nearly lobbed Mendy. So, you know, those moments, they, they still have it in them. So it, it, was, it was odd because I think actually maybe XG makes sense, despite the sort of territorial and sort of game advantage that Chelsea had in the second half. I felt a bit sorry for Trevor Shalaba to go back to the original point. I mean, he's got, there's no better two people to have either side of you than Aspilicueta and Thiago Silva, but you're kind of learning on the job there. He kind of ever played in a game like this. This is a defender who's been on loan in the EFL a lot in, in recent years. And he's he thrust into a game against Liverpool who play with such a high, high intensity. And in, in a game like that, you, you're basically learning what, whilst you're doing it. Some mistakes are going to come. He'll, he'll, he'll be all the better for having played in a game like that now, I think. But he can't have ever played in an occasion, an atmosphere in a game like that before. When you look at this game and what else these teams could have done, obviously you have the... Um injury list for Chelsea, you have the Lukaku situation. Liverpool actually were missing five first-team players, so they didn't really have many options to, you know, to step it up in the second half. One thing I would add as well, uh, the guys who came in yesterday, I think, did pretty well. Um, Kelleher uh, really saved twice from Pulisic, absolutely superbly. And I thought Mendy also had a decent game. I'm not a huge fan of Mendy, but I think he had a decent game apart from those one-on-ones, uh, because I think he's a little bit too rash on the first, and he is not proactive enough on the second. Whereas if you look at what Gallagher does against Pulisic, he takes a moment to see what Pulisic is going to do and then he goes in on him. But I think overall, you know, it's a high quality game of teams that were pushed to the limit by the season. Sash mentioned the Lukaku issue then. Listener, you, you'll know all about this now, uh, just in case anybody doesn't. An interview conducted three weeks ago with Sky Italia. He spoke about how he'd love to return to Inter Milan. He criticised uh, Thomas Tuchel and, and his tactics and Thomas Tuchel therefore left him out of the game yesterday. Dan, I think this is extraordinary because I just can't work out what he's trying to gain from this because if he's looking for a move, he's not going to go back to Inter. Who else is going to want him after this? What, 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 was, he, what was he thinking was going to happen positive as a result of this? 
I, I can't answer that question because surely there is no positive that can come out of conducting an interview in, in that way and saying the things that you said about the club that you currently are. It makes zero sense at all. And I was really, really worried for, for Chelsea going into that game. And then when they went 2-0 down, I was thinking Tuchel's in a, in a little bit of trouble here. He's got the Lukaku fanfare. They're 2-0 down against a very good side who could quite easily go on and, and blow them away now. But it does seem that the dressing room which is very rare at Chelsea. The dressing room is on side with him. They, they, they felt like they were playing for him in that game and they quite easily could, could have won that game. And to do so without your £100 million talisman, I think was really, really impressive and shows the measure of, of the man, Tuchel, the, the manager that he is. He, he took a strong decision, which he should be applauded for. He, he didn't mess around. There was no build-up into the game thinking, is Lukaku going to be there? We kind of all knew that Lukaku wasn't going to be part of that match day squad. It'll be interesting to see how it, how it unfolds now because... Like you say, he isn't going to be able to go anywhere. Lukaku is going to be at Chelsea for at least the rest of the season, probably beyond that. Let's face it, he'll probably outlast Tuchel because Chelsea, there is a bit of a managerial merry-go-round. But I don't know what Lukaku does from here. He's going to have to apologise. I presume there might have been some kind of of fine. I presume that that interview wasn't conducted with the club knowing about it. So there'll be some form of fine. Lukaku will have to apologise to Tuchel, his teammates and the the supporters. But it's, it's not great. And yeah... I don't know why he's done that, 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 unless anyone else can enlighten me. There's no logical answer to why he's conducted that interview. Well, the only mitigation I could think of, Daniel, was that he just likes to please people. And I say that because I I interviewed him for Chelsea TV after the Arsenal game where he made his second debut. And I asked him what I thought was an appalling question of where that ranked in terms of the best moments of his career. And he said it was the best moment of his career. This was just after he'd won Serie A. And I thought... Perhaps he just likes telling people what they think they want to hear. I, I think there's an element of truth in that. I think he is also uh, pretty blunt and pretty honest as a person. And, and therefore, if you ask him a question, not only does he say what, what he thinks you want to hear, but also just says what he thinks. He, th- there's no, no real element of, um, you could call it kind of media savviness or PR there. But I think he just... He had that opinion and he said it. And to an extent, I kind of admire the honesty. The problem was in the timing of it and the outlet because, you know, he must know that if you conduct an unsolicited interview or, you know, an interview for which you don't have club permission, then you have to be especially careful what you say because clubs don't like those kind of interviews for for exactly this reason. I don't have a huge problem with him saying he always want, you know, he would like to go back to, to Italy. I think Players quite often say that, particularly at clubs where they've won league titles and kind of rejuvenated careers. There's no surprise in that. I don't think that's a problem. But to then combine that with the criticism of the current tactics, and maybe he might say he phrased that badly. Maybe he said, you know, if he'd have said, we're just not fitting together, we've just not kind of worked it out yet, this is going to take time. There are tropes, there are cliches you can use that soften that punch. But he didn't use any of those. <laughs> he he said it exactly how he thinks. And and that's almost more worrying because all all the cards are on the table now. Chelsea can't sugarcoat this. Lukaku, even with an apology, can't really sugarcoat this because we know what he thinks now. Apparently there's a meeting taking place later on today, Monday, as we record. So we'll see what happens as a result of that. Uh, before we move on from this game, Sash, it was the, the Premier League's first safe standing trial match. 12,000 supporters are allowed to stand at a Premier League game. First time in nearly 30 years that that's happened. Um, I wonder what you made of it. I suppose it probably didn't make that much difference where you were because in the away end, people tend to stand anyway, but but they were doing so with less risk to themselves and others. Well, I think um, they. It, it, it almost feels like this was a formality because uh, the rail seating has been at Chelsea uh, this season. I mean, I went to the... Um, yeah, because I was at the Chelsea United game and I didn't notice any difference. And then I went, went to walk through the stand back to the press area. I was like, oh, this, this is here. So, I mean, this, this rail seating has been in place there before, but I think the rule would have been you're supposed to sit there. But this is, again, one of those rules that we have had since Premier League went to all-seater that, you know, everyone's supposed to sit, but sections of the crowd don't. Uh, most away fans don't. Um, depends on local stewards how, um, you know, how strict they try to be and try to get people to sit down, but it usually proves to be an impossible task to get an away end of several thousand people to sit down. Uh, we know that for all the big games, say, cop would stand... But what this does here is definitely makes it um, less possible for there to be like a crowd surge because you have these barriers which are affected at your waist height and, you know, try to jump or fall over that. So I think, obviously, looking, it looks at the German model, and, but I think it definitely makes it safer in my eyes. 
Uh, but also I think it's hugely symbolical that it's Liverpool playing in this you know, first game where it's a, you're officially allowed to stand. And there, is a little, even, there was even little signs uh, by the pitch at uh, Stamford Bridge which says, I think, safe standing is allowed or something like that. I, I took a picture of the sign yesterday. So it, it feels like it's a big moment and maybe people who watch, watch this from outside the country or maybe people who don't go to Premier League regularly don't appreciate it. But I think it's, it's, quite, it's quite psychologically, I think it's a big moment. And it's also a big moment for all those fans organizations who lobbied for this for many, many years and finally managed to get this through. I, I think, you know, when Celtic did it five years ago, it still felt like quite a long way away. I mean, 10, 15 years ago, it felt like an impossibility. So I think, you know, kudos to everyone who made this happen. Kudos to the clubs who listen to this. And of course, it's only four clubs who are doing this officially at the moment. But, you know, other clubs are looking at it as well. I think Liverpool have 1,800 rail seats installed at the back of the COP. Um, and I think there's plans to do more. But I, I like, I, I can't see this anything as other than positive. So therefore, Mark, is it Mark Roberts, the chief constable who's responsible for footy? His comments are just really weird. I, I just don't like that this is, I, th- I think, you know, if, if I was to sum up what he was saying is basically this is going to lead to chaos. Like how? Like, has he been to this? This is, you know, people, people have been standing in unsafe conditions in, or in less safe conditions, let's just say, let's say for many, many years. Suddenly making it, suddenly putting rails between rows would, would, make, would create chaos. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, so the trial continues uh, for the remainder of the season. Cardiff in the Championship also taking part in it as well. As for Chelsea and Liverpool, they're next in action in the League Cup semi-finals. Chelsea reuniting with Antonio Conte at Stamford Bridge on Wednesday. Liverpool travelled to Arsenal 24 hours later. All right, so from the end of the Premier League weekend, let's head back to the start and Saturday's early kickoff at the Emirates. Hi again, listeners, and happy new year. And be careful out there. Hamstring strains and treadmills go hand in hand at this time of the year. A bit like Romelu Lukaku and bitchy comments. So exercise some caution. Wednesday night sees Chelsea play host to Spurs at the bridge in what is the first leg of their Carabao Cup semi-finals. Will we see the return of the incredible sulk to the Chelsea lineup after Thomas Tuchel decided to put Lukaku in the naughty boys' corner last Sunday after his recent comments about not being all that happy at the club so far. Chelsea could have done with their 96 million quid number nine in the 2-2 draw with Liverpool last Sunday, but the German coach was not found wanting in the spine department and put the player in the freezer. Antonio Conte, meanwhile, has already given Spurs fans a small taste of what he can do. The Italian has yet to taste a feat since arriving in the Premier League, and he's even getting a tune out of one Harry Kane. In terms of the match betting, Chelsea are the 19-20 fans to win the match. The draw is 11-5, and the Spurs win is 27-10. Things have cooled down somewhat in recent seasons between these two rivals, and I don't think we're going to witness another Battle of the Bridge yellow card convention, but it's sure to be a close one, as Conte will have his troops fired up for sure. In terms of the outright betting for the league, Liverpool are the favourites to lift it at 7-4. Chelsea are then next up at 15-8 and it's 4-1 about both Arsenal and Spurs. You can find out these odds and more at paddypower.com or the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s only. T's and C's apply. BeGambleAware.org and remember, take time to think. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pearce, Ollie Kay and the very best football writers around. Well, Liverpool weren't the only team to play in London Sands manager this weekend. Didn't seem to matter too much for Arsenal as the Arteta Las Gunners turned in one of their best performances of the season, albeit in vain, against Manchester City who pinched the points in a 2-1 win courtesy of Rodri's stoppage time goal. Uh, Dan, was this uh, one of those glorious defeats? For Arsenal, where you can you can say, well, we take plenty of positives from that, even though we don't get any points. Yeah, I guess it it fits into that bracket, but it does all feel very different at Arsenal than I was expecting at the start of the season. I, I came on podcasts like this in August, September, and was very, very critical on Arsenal. Probably somewhat harsh looking back now. You can see what they're trying to do, and I think the most important thing for them is they've got the fans on side, they've got a team there that the fans like, that the, the fans can recognise and get on board with. And I think that's really important because it's something that Arsenal haven't had over the last few years. They were really, really unlucky on Saturday. They, they definitely deserve to take something from the game and I'm, I'm sure we'll come on to it, but that's the difference between Manchester City and the other title challengers who've fallen away. They will find a way to, to win a game. However they're playing, they'll, they'll do enough to win a game or something that will happen that will make sure that they win that game. And, and that's the difference. The only disappointment for me with Arsenal is things can be going brilliantly. 
it's, it's just Xhaka. It's going to be harsh to single him out, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> he'll have okay games. He'll have good games for Arsenal where, where you'll think, yeah, he's got something about him. He's a key cog in this side. But he will always be involved for the wrong reasons and always do something silly or something that will perhaps turn the match. That's exactly what's, what, what's happened again, I think. You can look at it and, and say it's harsh, but there's two pieces of contact for that penalty. And if you're going to guess who's given away a penalty for Arsenal, if you were to ask anyone before the game, who is it that's given away a penalty when things are going relatively well for Arsenal? Everyone is going to guess, Xhaka. I just feel like it's that kind of thing that's going to hold them back. Yes, they've got a team now, a young team, that the fans really, really like. But whilst they've still got Xhaka in that midfield, I think he will always cost you points. We've got to get on to the refereeing decisions then. Uh, da- Daniel, as Jimbo's not here, you can you can go in two-footed on BT and their coverage of the game, <laughs> if you like. Um, the the Odegaard one, I mean, you watch it a hundred times, you might have different opinions, but I think they they basically got it all right, didn't they? Yeah, I don't think... I mean, <laughs> at the risk of inviting criticism that I've already invited before, I don't think Stuart Atwell got a decision wrong. The only decision he, he, he maybe got wrong you know, as a, as a single individual is, is the... The Manchester City penalty because it was VAR that advised him to go and have a look at that but the referees would say that they work as a team and that that's simply part of the process that's not a referee getting a decision wrong everything else I think was spot on I mean we I understand that there is a, a reason to feel aggrieved and there's a reason to kind of deflect your annoyance from players within your team to players outside your team and referees become a very easy target then but the th- that was as bad as I've seen it. The reaction on Saturday between how, you know, how to me how uncontroversial the calls were, and certainly there were no howlers there, uh, with the kind of strength and the passion of the anger of the reaction from from Arsenal supporters. And and yeah, I mean, it isn't look, it isn't just BT at all. Um, it, it happens across the board, I think. But we have to get out if we are going to get out of this refereeing crisis, and it's growing all the time. Like. My greatest annoyance with this is that there seems to be thousands of football fans out there that assume we've got this magical cupboard of 20 high-class, world-class referees that we're just not using, that are waiting to replace the ones we've got. Like We haven't got that. Those referees come from the EFL, and you speak to EFL fans, and they say, oh, we've got awful refs, we need new refs, referees aren't good enough. There isn't this kind of magic group of officials waiting to come in. So we have to be better with what we've got, and I mean, I mean, I could talk about this for hours and bore everyone, but I don't. VAR has one hundred percent not helped this because it created this perception and this expectation of perfection in decision making, which was never going to exist. But the climate has to change as well because you know, even this weekend alone, we had we had both Tuchel and Linders having a go at refereeing decisions. We had Patrick Vieira going on the pitch at half time and full time screaming at the referee for decisions and then in his post-match interview after the game saying yeah I thought it was a penalty on second viewing you think well come on then mate <laughs> meet them halfway and look it's it's not particularly popular to defend referees because the the conversation has gone too far but we're going to run out of them in three or four years time and then everyone will wonder why standards really really have dropped I guess in this specific case of Stuart Atwell, there's, there's maybe still a slight issue of, of credibility as far as he's concerned, because even that was a long time ago that, you know, the ghost goal that he gave Reading, the fact that he's been dropped from the Premier League roster before, albeit that was a, a decade ago. And, and, you know, that's before we even get to his to his lockdown haircut. Um, Sash, in, in terms of Manchester City, this is a city that I can get on board with, I think, because I find their relentless perfection a little bit tedious at times. So it was kind of refreshing to see them below par. Well, I think I think what Arsenal did quite well, and I, I think they exploited the presence of Ake, because I don't think Ake gave them very much, gave City very much down that left-hand side. If I'm not mistaken, Zinchenko was out with COVID, doesn't he? Um, so I think because I had to watch uh, watch this game afterwards because I landed just as Rodri scored from my holiday, which was like great news. Um, <laughs> and um, I think. So Arsenal play pressed City's right hand side and kind of left the left hand side open. I've seen this done before by teams, because they think that the fullback on that side isn't going to be particularly effective. So I think in that way the press kind of worked. Um, and I think actually, if anything, Xhaka I thought was pretty good at leading it. Maybe he made other mistakes, but I think here he was pretty good. So effectively, they managed to shut City down and prevent the you know 
biannual occurrence of City scoring three goals in the first 10 minutes and running away with it, which has happened for seems to be like five or six years. So I think they, they should, the, the press worked. So defensively, they were, they were quite good and they were quite good against the best team in the country. Uh, and then also, I think they broke quite well. So the, the, I thought Erdogan again was, was very, very uh, in, intelligent. And uh, Martinelli, um, again, used his um, ability to, uh, on the counter very, very well. And I think it spooked City a little bit. But of course, the sending off helps in a way that, you know, Arsenal can't really offer much after that. Uh, you have to play against City at 100% strength. Once you don't, you end up with a situation where you get pushed deeper and deeper and deeper. So you do end up holding midfielder in the box, just creating chaos because he can, because he doesn't have anything else to do. So I think I think they were uh, they were unlucky in the fact that the sending off did happen. However, if you're on the yellow, I don't understand why the body check there happens. So I don't think he, Gabriel can really complain. But yeah, I, th- I think overall... Um, you're looking at this Arsenal performance, and f- to me, for the first hour, it really speaks of extreme competence. And I would also like to go back on the whole refereeing thing. I genuinely don't understand how the Edison challenge on Odegaard can be anything other than a penalty, without you know going into foot on the referees or anything like that. He is he loses control. He takes his legs. I just like I genuinely look at that. Think. Like, how can you argue against it? Uh, I don't know what B- the guys on BT were saying. At the same time, I think that Xhaka putting, you know, putting hands uh, on um, on Bernardo Silva is enough to take him down. I know maybe he shouldn't be doing it, but again, that to me, that's not a penalty. So I think they were those decisions. Also, Arsenal can count themselves unlucky on. So I think overall, it's, this is extremely positive because only a few months ago they were getting absolutely destroyed by City and looked all at sea, and now they they have a plan. It works. Some decisions go against them, but overall, I think Arteta, you know, over Zoom or whatever after the game, should be extremely positive and extremely proud of his players. I mean, yeah, I I, I disagree with you on the the Odegaard penalty. I think it could have been a penalty. the 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 only angle I saw that made me eventually think it could well have been a penalty was that kind of hyper zoomed in one that various Arsenal fan accounts shared ad infinitum. Um, but that I don't know that that to me. If you're then looking for a clear and obvious error, error from the referee or a clear and obvious overturn, I think you get into the realms of whether that's debatable. My my flip side to your positivity, Matt, about kind of getting in, on board with this city, and you know I do love watching them, but they played on the 29th. Arsenal have not played since Boxing Day. Arsenal were probably the second in kind of form t- team in the country, and City were first. City didn't play very well and Arsenal played at their best and City still won away from home at Arsenal. Now, if that's pretty damning and pretty upsetting for the rest of the league, I'd have thought. Uh, it is now 11 wins in a row for City in the league. It means they have a 10-point lead over Chelsea, who they face at the Etihad when the league resumes in a fortnight. We'll get back to Saturday's action later, but next we'll turn our focus to the rest of Sunday's games. It's the Paddy Power Football Supporters Support Line. We're talking to Joe in Newcastle and Greg in Norwich. How are you feeling, gents? Oh, uh, yeah, good. Optimistic, Paddy. Uh, but your team's at the bottom of the table. Why are you so happy? Well, I think I speak for Norwich and Newcastle fans everywhere when I say we really fancy our chances of uh, winning the championship next year. Ah, huh, silver linings, eh? Just like with Paddy Power's Bet Builder, where you get money back as a free bet if one leg lets you down. Paddy Power! Applies to pre-match online Bet Builder bets with minimum four legs of at least one to five odds each. Max free bet £10 per day excludes enhanced match odds. T's and C's apply. 18 plus BeGambleAware.org. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show, part of The Athletic Podcast Network. Walks to a challenge, now Gelhart on this right-hand side, looks up, moves up towards the edge of the penalty area. Gelhart goes wide, Dan James' header! Oh, what a save! Oh, it's gone in! Oh, Dan James' header loops up off the goalkeeper and drops in the far corner of the net, and that should do it! That Significant do it. Sunday... Uh, Listen, you can see why I never got that job in the marketing department at Sky Sports. Still, Leeds 3, Burnley 1 feels like a biggie in terms of this season's relegation scuffle. Uh, Marcelo Bielsa said, whilst looking at his shoes, as he is wont to do, it was a necessary victory in a game that's very important at this stage of the season. Uh, It's pretty root one way of explaining it. Dan, but he's absolutely right, isn't he? Eight eight points clear of the relegation zone, even though Burnley got a couple of games in hand on them. 
Yeah, I think probably that's the biggest result of the weekend, probably both for Leeds and, and for Burnley. It felt like it was all going a little bit awry for, for Bielsa, but there are extenuating circumstances in that they've had so so many problems with injuries all season. I don't think they've had their best 11 play at any point so far this season, so you have to, have to bear that in mind. But this could be the year that, that Burnley goes. So for Leeds to pull even further away from them, who I, I would say Leeds are probably contenders to get relegated this season, that feels very, very big and I am worried about Burnley now. I think you can say, oh, they know they know what they're doing. They know how to get out of these situations. It doesn't feel to me like it's been as desperate for them at any point in their Premier League tenure as it, as it is at the moment. And for, for Leeds to win in the end at a canter, I'd be quite worried if I, if I was a Burnley fan. But a huge three points for Leeds, much needed three points for them. And Bielsa will be sleeping easier for sure right now. Not only did Leeds win, but Dan's absolutely right. They won at a canter, really. They've, they had 22 shots, which is the most they've had in a game since they played Sheffield United last season. We know how bad they were last season. And they only conceded or only faced seven shots. And they've only faced fewer than that twice since they got promoted. So, that, I mean, that's an absolute battering. And they, you know, they did let Burnley back in because... Burnley's Maxwell Corne scored another brilliant goal, but Corne's off to the AFCON in, you know, for the next six weeks. And he's their only, he's the only player in that team that's playing well at the moment, which is pretty frightening given that Sean Dyche's whole thing at Burnley is, is kind of creating a team great in the sum of its parts. Uh, yeah, and they've won one game all season. Their next five, Sash, against Leicester, Arsenal, Man United, Liverpool and Brighton. How many points do you see them picking up in those? Well, not not many, especially with Wayne Hennessy in goal. If uh, he he carries on, um, I I can't believe Hennessy's still playing. To be honest, and I think he's only at uh, Burnley as he's the third choice there. So I think you know this this was very much enforced, but certainly not the keeper you want in such difficult conditions. But yeah, I I only saw the highlights of this, but they they looked very very limited, and they looked for the first time. I thought you know drenched Sean Dyche looked fairly. He, I think he's losing hope and I think you could see it in his post-match interview as well and to be honest I think they're just quite bad and you know if this is the difference between the 16th and the 18th team uh, in, in the league as we look at it at the moment and they are eight points behind that 16th team I mean the only hope they have is that uh, Watford will somehow become even worse. Daniel you made the point in, in your column your fantastic Monday column the score uh, that Sean Dyche needs to go cap in hand to Burnley's owners Problem is they're not going to they're not going to furnish him with any money, are they? You know, if, you, if you're thinking, okay, we need a new signing, and in comes a sort of average Championship midfielder for eight million pounds, that's not going to be what keeps you up. No, and 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 even worse is that there inevitably is a comparison with what Newcastle will do in the January transfer window because one of those two clubs will go down. I think so. That's even less likely that they make improvements. And and you know, ever since Alan Pace's takeover at that club, there have been questions about the financing of that deal and whether it's being done for kind of revenue generation rather than you know taking Burnley to higher planes than they could ever have imagined and you know I think we saw a couple of weeks ago a kind of plan or potential plan for you know raising money through NFTs to, that they're selling to supporters and that sort of thing and it it all just feels a little bit worrying and let's not get ahead of ourselves Burnley have burnt us all too many times before with a little run where they they suddenly get out of trouble but if they go down they're not I don't think they are a yo-yo club. I don't think they're a club that will immediately come back up if if Sean Dyche doesn't stay. Because at some point, he must be considering the fact that staying at Burnley now is is harming his reputation more than it's helping it. Yeah, bad day made worse by Matt Lowton getting hit with a bottle thrown from the crowd in the post-Cornet goal celebration. And that was a bit of a theme this weekend, which is a bit of a worry. Uh, Meanwhile, at Goodison Park, Brighton moved up to the dizzy heights of Eighth place after their first ever win away to Everton. Those sticky toffees putting in another poor performance in front of their own supporters. Uh, we'll get to them shortly, Dan, but we need to give Brighton some praise, don't we? What, what a week it's been for them. Scored at Stamford Bridge for the first time. First win at Goodison and up to eighth. Is that, is that about their ceiling this season? I think eighth is anyone's this season. I honestly think there's a high number of teams that, that could finish eighth this season, Brighton being one of them. That's such a great start to the season and then it felt like they didn't win for about three years, but they've picked up a couple of great results recently. They were really good at, at Chelsea. That that goal felt like, from Danny Welbeck, felt like it had been coming for a long time. It was long overdue in that game and they're just 
sometimes they're, they're, I find them a bit boring. I watched them, I watched them at Villa Park, and I thought, nah, these are these are boring. Yes, they've moved the ball around nicely, but it's not often with with any purpose, and it doesn't really feel like they're going anywhere. But then they have games where they play at, at such pace, move the ball around with real penetration, and look like they're going to score every time they come forward. Now, a lot of those games they don't because they haven't got a striker. But yesterday was one of those games where they did look like they were going to score when they came forward and. Everton, they just, I think they took advantage of Everton being an easy place to play. Goodison Park, teams must relish going there at the moment because you've got a disjointed side that's got a collection of players from so many managers now that, that don't really come together and, and, and make a team. It's, it's really worrying for Everton. You've got fans that don't, majority don't really seem keen on the manager or seem keen on the player. So when things start to go wrong, it can turn very, very easily and become a really uncomfortable and hostile place for the Everton players to play. And Brighton took advantage of that. It's not often Brighton score three goals, but they did it yesterday and they looked effective. And to be sitting out at this stage of the season, Potter will be absolutely delighted. The Brighton fans will be, will be delighted, but on the Everton side, I'm really, really worried for them. As Sasha says, there's some bad teams in this league. I think Everton will, will get by because there's teams that are worse than them, but they're really, really bad at the moment. And there's not a lot to smile about at all from the Everton perspective. Do you think there's a more miserable team to support, Sash, in the Premier League at the moment than Everton? It just feels like they're locked in this loveless marriage. You know, they're kind of waiting for the new stadium if, as if that's going to be the answer to, to all their problems. Their, their transfer policy is, is veering wildly from we don't have any money to spend on, on anybody but Damari Gray and Andros Townsend on a free to, hey, we're buying a pair of new wing-backs just after we've got rid of the guy who supposedly picks the players. It just feels like a, a, a totally random sequence of events with, with no positive outcome. I think um, supporting Everton has been a character-building experience for many decades now, as uh, Everton fans probably will tell you. Um, I think the main frustration at the moment is that money has evidently been spent, and it's been spent appallingly. Yes, I think the stadium, it's a great project and, you know, best of luck, you know, building that. And I think it'd be a brilliant, brilliant home for them because Goodison Park definitely is an upgrade. But it's what goes on elsewhere. And I think fundamentally you have, obviously there was a power struggle and, you know, Rafa loves to control everything. But at the same time, if Usmanov wants to do something or, you know, Mashiri wants to do something, they'll, they'll do it over everybody's head. So this is where, I mean, they, signed, they just signed Vitaly Mikolenko uh, the uh, the left back, who is actually a, he's a lovely guy. Uh, he's well rated in Ukraine. He they really wanted to Surkis um, Surkis brothers who run Dynamo Kiev really wanted to get him a good move, which is the bit that got me worried because I think so. This is a move where the two owners sets of owners agreed uh, agreed it. Um, I'm not sure how much input Benitez has had into that. I, I, I would like to think that you know, he asked for a left-back and he's getting a left-back, a very decent one, a lad who wants to learn, a lad who can play several positions there, someone whom Shevchenko really liked in the national team because, and Shevchenko and his Italian geeks, you know, they're quite demanding of the, of, they were quite demanding of their players. So I think they're getting a good player in, but at the same time, this is getting a player in through the relationship from, of the owners, which makes me again slightly worried about, it, you know, about the overall strategy. So, yeah, so I, it's, 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 it is hateful there. And as I said at the start of the season, you know, a couple of bad results and, you know, Rafa, people, will, the fans will turn on Rafa and now it's, like, but now it's about like 13 bad results. It is a situation you would not like to find yourself in. Currently, the, I don't see a light at the end of the tunnel. Apart from uh, Dominic Calvert-Leon is back. All right, he missed the penalty, but I think this is, a, this is, this, this is someone they really missed up front. Uh, Rondon has disappointed me personally. I expected him to be more of a player than, uh, you know, the the almost retired veteran that he comes across at the moment. Um, but yeah, but uh, but also at the same time, this is maybe if you go to play Everton now and you have a strong midfield and you have Yves Bissoumi in that midfield, you can just bully bully them off the pitch, which I think was what happened here. And, you know, a few days earlier, Brighton bullied Chelsea off the pitch. Um, so so th th this is this is sort of a fixture that can maybe look kind on paper for Everton, but nothing is kind in real life for Everton at the moment. And actually, Daniel, I think the transfer policies of the two clubs over the last year give a good illustration of how they're being run differently, don't they? You know, you look at people like Mwepu yesterday and Kukurella and from a couple of years back, Tarek Lamptey, they're all kind of screams of smart recruitment, which is pretty much the opposite of what Everton have done. Yeah, I think for a while, the only frustration of Brighton supporters was that their club were very deliberately kind of focusing on buying potential and the the danger of that is that you never quite 
that potential always seemed to lie just around the corner. So you were never quite seeing the best version of Brighton that you could. But I think this season now with, with Mwepo coming through, Basuma is brilliant. Tariq Lamptey has matured. Uh, and and now you've got players like, you know, Alexis McAllister, who who he's, he's been around a long time. He's, he's nearly 24, but he's... Um, yeah, he just they just look so composed on the ball and they look so clear about how they, they're going to play. I agree with Dan that there are games that pass them by completely and you kind of wonder why they can't do it every week. But um, I think that lies in the fact that they don't have a striker that kind of buys them a result when, you know, when they've not played very well, which other teams do. But there are fans of at least 70 different professional clubs in England who should be incredibly jealous of Brighton supporters at the moment. And, and you know what? Fair play to Brighton fans because they were in a position for, for most of the last 30, 40 years slash their entire history when they were jealous of other clubs. So from the rickety old stately home on Merseyside to the smart new build in West London, set to soar in value. Uh, the Brentford Community Stadium saw Brentford beat Aston Villa by two goals to one on Sunday. Moves the Bees up to 23 points. We'll get to them shortly, but Dan, we'll start with Villa seeing as you're here. Uh, Stephen Gerrard back on the touchline. The worst result of his tenure. What, what did you make of his criticism of his team after the game too? Very fair. In his reflection, I think Stephen Gerrard had a little bit of a snapshot yesterday into why Dean Smith lost his job as Aston Villa manager because I think the players let him down. I think it was a it was a great start, going one nil up, moving the ball around really nicely. Nice goal from Buendia and, and Ings, something that we've not seen this season at all. As Villa fans, the kind of replacements for Grealish linking up and scoring a very, very nice goal. I think that was quite refreshing and nice to see starting off 2022. But then it all went back a little bit to, to when Dean Smith was there. I mean, Villa haven't put in a bad display under Gerrard until this game. Every game they've been in, and that's one thing that Stephen Gerrard said, is opposition will know they're in a game. Brentford beat Villa yesterday without having to do a fat lot, and that will be a concern. I mean, Villa's record at Brentford has been abhorrent over the last few years. I've spent many a day sat in their old rickety ground watching Villa get completely outplayed by Dean Smith's Brentford. So the logical thing to do there was to take that manager away from them and put him in charge of us. But they still beat us. We just can't beat Brentford. I don't know what I don't know what it is. They, they didn't even play well yesterday, but they've managed to win 2-1 with a lot of players missing without having to really lay a glove on Aston Villa. And it, it was really, really disappointing. I think there's a lot of optimism at Villa at the moment because Gerrard's changed a lot of things and he's looked really, really good in his spell so far. But it was kind of back down to earth with a bit of an ugly bump yesterday for Villa. And yeah, 2022, not off to the best of starts. It's quite early, Daniel, for him to go in on his players, isn't it? Is he already thinking, well, I've got one eye on, on next season and I know who's going to be with me from this group and who isn't? Yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly right. I also think he has a, a mandate from supporters to do that because of how it ended under Dean Smith and Dan knows better than me how popular Smith was and therefore there is a culpability on the part of the players that they they got a very popular and a very successful Villa manager sacked so I think you know you'll have Dan said it himself a very fair assessment for Gerard. I think there is a mandate there from supporters to for Gerard to spend the rest of the season to work out what fits which players he likes which personalities he likes and then hopefully have some money to spend in in the summer. It was interesting hearing Gerard talk about, you know, if Villa can get the signings I want in January, supporters will be very happy. I'd be I'd be slightly wary of doing that unless they are long-term targets, which feels quite hard given that Gerard's not been there that long. I think he would be better kind of getting through to the summer and then building on the, you know, building on a plan then rather than spending in January for what is probably only going to be a couple of positions gain. Now from what I'm hearing from people close to the club January if Villa can they're going to be very very active yeah there's yeah. an argument that you could say that there's three or four players that, that are required at Villa and it wouldn't surprise me to see that kind of number being brought in I know January isn't a great time to bring players in it's also a really really hard time to shift players which might might be part of the problem for Villa with getting people in they might need to get rid of a few bodies first but after that performance yesterday I think Gerard was visibly frustrated I think if you heads could roll and there's a couple of players that perhaps played in that game that you might not see pull on a Villa shirt again. Uh, Sash, Brentford fans screaming at their devices now for us to, to give them some praise. I, I kind of feel like Brentford, Brighton, handshake emoji, two very well run clubs on the up. Brentford have got 23 points already. They're going to stay up quite comfortably, aren't they? Well, I don't think any of those bottom three are going to get 23 points at the rate they're going. Um, so, I thought, yeah, so, so let's declare Brentford safe, which, of course, Brentford fans would hate me for. Um, but, yeah, I'd like to, yeah, again, big up my local team, as they're Brentford are now. 
Because I think there was a danger at one point when they started losing all those games, it's really not playing very well, um, that they needed to pick up some wins by maybe playing a little bit ugly. And I think this, this is what the performance against Villa was. But I think the important thing there was that they, they got back the sort of the fist in central midfield because obviously Nurgle just signed a new contract, I think. But then you had um, Onyeka and Jensen next to him. And I feel that in any game when those three are on the pitch in the middle of the park, I think Brentford have a chance. Um, and also, I think if you look where the Brentford goals came from, um, kind of it feels like that Villa central midfield kind of just melted away, which I think when someone like Nurgle sees that in front of him, I think they're going to take advantage of that very well. So I, now that Brentford are safe, I think hopefully they can, uh, well, I think next game is at, what, is at Anfield, so it's going to be quite difficult. Uh, but I think like they, they, they've... To me, they've gone through a difficult spell. Also, I think you have to look maybe at the way they're set up in terms of playing. Like the 3-5-2 works best against the bigger clubs. I don't think it seems to work as effectively against sides, you know, on the same level as Brentford. So maybe uh, Frank needs to look at how he might tweak the system, maybe go back to 3-4-3. Like this, this is sort of, sort of me, me brainstorming because I think as a 3-5-2... It, it's just not as effective if you need to p- play more proactive football for me. Um, and uh, so we'll, we'll see. Uh, but I'm, I'm qu- quite curious. I'll, I'll see them a few more times in the second half of the season. Um, and it's, it, it's definitely, you know, as, as I said before, you know, if you're about and if you can get a ticket, go see Brentford because they're superb. It's, um, the, the thing that amazes me about Brentford, which I, I, I might be wrong, but strikes me as unusual for a, for a promoted club, is that there's not any obvious drop-off from substitutes to first team. Normally, I think when a club comes up, especially if you've got a star striker, as, as even Tony was in the Championship, they quite often get found out because when injuries set in or fatigue sets in, there isn't quite the strength in depth. But Brentford have had 19 or 20 different players who have started three or more Premier League games this season. And someone like Wieser is is one of them. He's only started three. I know I'm picking him out because he scored a brilliant goal at the weekend, but it just feels like there's not that obvious huge drop-off from first team to reserves, which is really, really useful in this season more than any other. Do you think that's to do with the B team model at all? The, the, the yeah, way they operate? It, it might, I suspect it's, yeah, I suspect it's to do with that and their recruitment model because they obviously have, have, have recruited a, a high number of players from a large number of countries. And yeah, they, it just seems like there's this sort of... What it does is it creates this incredible competition for places. If you're on the bench and you think, well, I think the guy in the team isn't that much better than me, then, yeah, it can really help that competition for places. A couple more games to get through before we go. On Saturday at Vicarage Road, Spurs got a late win against Watford. Davinson Sanchez heading in from about a yard out in stoppage time. Uh, According to you, Dan, a game very low on quality. Yeah, it's awful. Horror, horrid, horrid horror watch in that in that first half. I sat there thinking, I've got to be doing something better with my life. I mean, I've got COVID at the moment, to be fair, so I've got nowhere to go. So it was the perfect opportunity to sit and watch some football. Before that television. Television. Yeah, all I did this weekend was was watch football. But just I can't work Spurs out. Evidently, they are better under Conte, or they're at least more effective. But I can't work out what it is that he's particularly changed. Yes, Harry Kane looks like he, he might score a few more goals under Conte than, than he did under Nuno. But in general, there's something different. But I've sat there and watched him a number of times and I can't work out exactly what it is. I'm not sure they're actually better. They're just more effective now. I thought Watford I was surprised by because they're a team at the moment that are going to stay up because they've got players that can put the ball in the back of the net. But the way they played against Spurs, it was as if they, they, they were sitting back and just trying to nick a game 1-0, which... That's not really Watford for me. You, you kind of forget that they are newly promoted because it feels like they've yo-yoed so much and that they've been in the Premier League and the Championship. But you kind of feel like they've been in the Premier League for a while. But it, like Brentford, it's it's their first season back. So actually, that they're, they're doing okay. But they just didn't really play in a style or a manner that was going to get them three points against Tottenham at the weekend. And yeah, I just can't work Tottenham out at all, which isn't great for someone who's coming on and talking about Tottenham on a podcast. <laughs> I, I guess though, Sash, we'll find out a bit more about Spurs over the next few weeks. We take out the Morecambe game in the FA Cup next weekend. Uh, the next four games, three of them are against Chelsea and one's against Arsenal. So yeah, if you're going to learn something about Antonio Conte's Tottenham, this would be the time. I think also it's kind of very much feeds into the sort of Conte mentality. So I, th- I think there'll be a lot of motivation and there'll, there'll be also, I'm just I'm just remembering back to his time at Chelsea, you know, it didn't immediately sort of click and then he switched the system and um, 
there's a lot of micromanagement going on with Conte, and I'm pretty sure they're still playing a bit of catch up from you know the time they had out. Um, but you know, if you want your team, you know, as as Dan said, to become effective, more efficient, if anything, I think Conte is the perfect man for it. And um, also, Conte is the guy who seems to achieve a quick transformation almost everywhere he goes. Um, so I think January, if anything, comes at the perfect time for him to test, you know, exactly how far he's taken his team. But I think also, if you look at the way the front three, I, I think, again, this has been mentioned on the podcast over the last few weeks. I think this is, you know, it's, 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 it is a more familiar um, Spurs in terms of intensity, in terms of the hard work, in terms of, you know, how, you know, the front line moves. But it also, I keep on looking at it thinking, these players, did they just look at Nuno and went, nah, because I cannot believe that, you know, Conte can just come in to, and the transformation and attitude is to, to, to such a huge extent that, like, I, I can't help but think that players just didn't rate Nuno and kind of waited for a better manager to come in. And they got one. Uh, Daniel, yeah, which, what do you which, which, which obviously worked, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what do you think is more likely, Daniel? Watford staying up or Tottenham finishing fourth? Um, more likely is Watford staying up, I think. Uh, I think Manchester United and Arsenal and Tottenham, I think it would be close. Um, I'm now considering whether I'm talking absolute garbage. It will be very close. <laughs> what about, what close. about West Ham? No, I, okay. No. I think Watford are more likely to stay up than West Ham are to get in the top four. Thanks, Dan. You throw me a, throw me a pass there. Yeah, I just... I got a bit of stick from Watford fans, and, and fair enough, they know the club far more than me for, for suggesting a couple of weeks ago on here that, that Ranieri was under serious pressure. But I, I agree with Dan, it's, it's kind of hard to know what they are. They've, they've had these magnificent spells in matches against Everton and Manchester United where they've scored two or three goals in pretty quick succession, but they haven't taken a point under Ranieri in, in the other nine games. Uh, it's just, it doesn't strike me. The point with Kike Sanchez Flores when he got sacked two years ago, was that the team was better than he was performing. And their, their point in Ranieri is that this squad isn't good enough and he's getting the most out of them. But then I kind of think that's pretty harsh on Cisco Munoz, who then got sacked after seven points in seven games. If if Ranieri's doing a good job with six and 11, it's kind of hard to know what happens. And look, much will depend on what happens over the next few weeks and what happens with Ishmael Assar and, and it seems Emmanuel Dennis staying. But um, it is pretty much those two stick at the moment, it feels. There could be nowhere left for Watford to go, manager-wise. They've had every relegation firefighter. <laughs> and they've had every obscure manager from abroad at this point, surely. <laughs> I don't know where they would go if they got rid of Ranieri. Nigel Pearson back again. There is, I can't, they can't get rid of another manager, surely. It's nearly um, Hayden Mullins' season, baby. Yeah, <laughs> I was just going to say, Sam Allardyce has entered the chat. Uh, quick, yeah. let's move on. Uh, Crystal Palace 2, West Ham 3. You, you'd think that Palace won't have any relegation concerns. Uh, Sash, they definitely shouldn't have been 3-0 down at half-time in this game. They almost managed to fight back. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it was a weird way to go 3-0 down, particularly the that mental handball for the penalty. Um, <laughs> just, just nuts. But also, you have to admire, as we talked about at the start of the show, poor old Manuel Lanzini. I mean, the way he juggled that ball between, like, before absolutely smashing it in was just, it was just glorious. But I think um, clearly the subs worked for Palace. Uh, and, you know, Michael Olise put an absolutely stunning ball, two absolutely stunning balls towards the end. Obviously, Crystal, um, you know, Selhurst Park works as well. I think everybody was on side. I, yeah, they shouldn't, they shouldn't have been 3-0 down. Um, but it's it's also refreshing to see Palace playing like this after after years and years and years of Hodgson. Um, and you know those fans managed to endure through that. Okay, fine. You know, the objective was to stay up. But now, again, it's nice to see that the club are trying to move, finally make that next step uh, to to be more progressive. Um, after the big overhaul in the summer, again, they're in no danger. Uh, let me just double check the time right on this. Yeah, the same as Brentford. Okay, they've stayed up. Um, so. Uh, uh, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think I think it's an environment now where Vieira has done enough in the first half of the season to buy himself maybe some room and some some time for maybe sometimes a game like this can happen and he can lose his rag and they can lose three two, but at the same time there is just uh, week after week there's quite a lot of encouraging signs. Yeah, I kind of I kind of thought when Vieira was appointed that he was either going to get sacked after three months or stay for three years and. It, it does kind of feel like that, having got through that initial period, having got them semi-safe in mid-table, that he now probably, again, has that kind of mandate to 
to oversee some more wholesale changes in terms of personnel because he's basically trying to play a completely different style with 80% of the same team. Uh, West Ham-wise, Dan, you've got them still in the top four conversation then? I think they were, they were up there last last season. I don't see any reason this season other than going really far in the Europa League and that proving a massive distraction more. They, they won't be up there again. The other teams that we're talking about, West Ham are as, as good as them, I, I would say. They, they go into games, you watch them play, I, I would say West Ham are as good as Arsenal. They're perhaps as as good as Tottenham. So I, I, they're definitely better to watch than Manchester United, but then most teams in the Premier League are at the moment. <laughs> yeah, you know, I would have West Ham in the, in the conversation still. A little bit of a worry that they, they, it feels to me like they struggle to see games out. They'll be in a comfortable position and then they will concede two goals quickly. I feel like that's something that's happened quite a few times over the last couple of seasons now to, to West Ham. That would be my only concern, but that, they've got injuries at the back at the moment and they're still, by and large, getting results. I, I would have them in the conversation for sure. They're, they're definitely not out the top four us. And we almost got one of the all-time great equalisers on a weekend of fantastic goals from Jean-Philippe Mateta right at the end. Uh, So that was the weekend's Premier League action. Uh, Stick around. We'll make some bold predictions for 2022 next. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX's Welcome to Wrexham, all new, Thursdays on FX, stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, an association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which will give some cheer to all you Hammers fans when David Moyes signs Maran Fellaini to help with West Ham's latest injury crisis. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet, minimum four plus legs, maximum free bet is £10. Other T's and C's apply, and please gamble responsibly. Totally Football League show is out on Tuesday this week with the relentless me at the helm, like a low-key Jared Gillett pulling double GT. Uh, we're doing it a day later because we thought we might have some championship games to talk about today. We will have a few, hopefully. Uh, totally Football Show European Edition will return next Tuesday. Uh, right, Charlie said that given I've established myself on this podcast as the king of the predictions, hi Bournemouth fans, yeah, I'm still still milking that one. Uh, let's have your big calls for 2022 before we go. Uh, Daniel, you've written a wish list for the eye of what you would like to happen. I'd like a prediction though, please. Some, something out there that, that you think we'll see in 2022. Um, <laughs> I was going to be incredibly negative. I, I will be incredibly negative. I'll stay on brand. Uh, I, I don't think either England women's or England men's team will reach the final of their major tournaments this year. Which is So I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, do do stick around for those uh, special World Cup and Euros podcasts that we'll be doing throughout the tournament, though, listener. Um, Dan, how about you? I'm going to go the opposite to Daniel. I'm going to say we're going to win both. I'm going to say we're going to win both. <laughs> nice. So, 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 what we do there, one of us might be right. So at least one of us will look clever come, come the end of those tournaments. I, think, I, don't, I certainly don't see any reason why either of them can't can't win the tournament. What makes you think that, Daniel? Uh. I think Spain are well. I think there are there's so many teams in that women's Euros, like right down to Germany and Sweden, who I think are like sixth or fifth or sixth favourites now. There's just so much, so much strength in depth there. Uh, and England men's team have perennially been dreadful at playing in high heat, and I just don't think. Uh, I think this tournament comes at a slightly annoying time for Southgate kind of mid-season in the heat this is the one that they always Greg Dyke said that they wanted to win and then kind of scroll back on it and I just think that pressure now creates just another layer of of kind of uh, media glare and fan pressure I just think they might fall slightly short 
I hate to say it, I hate to say this phrase, but I think the building blocks are there. <laughs> I think yeah. you'll see a very similar squad to the Euros, which obviously wasn't that long ago. I really think they they can go one better and win it. I think I mean, the experience I say, of the Euros as well. I should say, if England get to a World Cup semi-final again, then it will be treated as a, a, a huge disaster because that's how we do things here. But that would be perfectly acceptable given our history and given where we're coming from and given the probable age of that squad as well. There should be no complaints at a semi-final. It's just that's not how it will be seen. Uh, Sash, my bold prediction at the start of the season was that Man City wouldn't win the Carabao Cup, so I'm pretty chuffed with that one. Um, I also said on Straight Out of Cobham, the Chelsea podcast from The Athletic, that Kepa will be Chelsea's first choice keeper from next season. Can you give me any advance on, on either of those? How much has Kepa got left on his contract? Um, it would be my question. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not, not, not so sure about that, um, to, to be honest. Uh, if I were to say about my predictions for, for for this season, I reckon an all English Champions League final in St. Petersburg, because I, I think at least City, Chelsea, and Liverpool can go very deep in this Champions League. Um, Chelsea got a buy in the next round, effectively. No disrespect to Lille. Disrespect to Lille. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, so I, so that that's what I'll stick with. <laughs> One thing I would say about the women's Euros as well: um, of all the teams who I think are hard done by, are Russia. They have to play all three games in Lee, which is, which is one like the one non-proper ground effect that's being used by the Euros. They'll lose all three games and go home with quite a miserable experience, I think. So I think thanks for the organizers. Um, I don't really have any big high hopes for, for Qatar. Um, I think it's going to just knock in next season, to be honest. So I'm going to be negative there. Um, but yeah, so the thing I'm looking forward to most uh, in 2022 is the Champions League final in St. Petersburg. All right, Charlie's logged all those and we'll play them back at the end of the season, I'm sure. Uh, that'll just about do it for today, though. Many thanks to Dan, to Daniel, to Sasha, to Charlie for putting it all together and to you for listening. The good news, Jimbo's back on Thursday. Do join him then, if you can. From all of us here, though, it's bye for now. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on The Athletic app, and discover bonus content by following The Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an athletic media company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.